Okay, those of you who were here last week, I believe 2636, that's where we stopped. I thought we talked about that. What page of your notes? Page 11, sorry. Yeah, Matthew 26 to 27. Uh, we, mentioned, we started in on that. Uh, let me recap. Uh, I asked the question, where are the places that Jesus' blood is mentioned? And, and I'm going to include all the Gospels here because uh, one Gospel isn't sufficient. Interestingly enough, what, what the Gospels highlight is not the blood from the crown of thorns or the scourging or the nails in his hands and feet. What is highlighted is the blood that he sweats in the Garden of Gethsemane mm -hmm. and the blood that comes from his side. So what does that mean? Why is that blood so important? The blood he sweat in Gethsemane and the blood that comes from his side. The sweat of God was the maximum stress that a human can can go through. It's actually, there's actually a medical term for it. And yeah, I forgot the name. Endo, endo, uh, now I'm forgetting it. But it's, it's a condition caused by mental anguish or depression, severe depression. Mm. And it's actually been documented. In fact, many years ago I was teaching a class uh, on atonement and salvation. And a student I had explained this in class, and a student came up to me and said, I would like to write my paper on that, because he said, I have that condition. <laughs> and uh, so he did. He wrote his paper on it and described his own experience. And it was physiological with him, but it was still nonetheless very tied to depression. I think the depression was caused by physiological uh, and it was it was so severe that he would bleed through his uh, front forehead. Uh, so endotridrosis, something like that. Yes, the hematridrosis. Hema, hema I I didn't get the right beginning right. Hematridrosis. Is a prayer. Endotridrosis. Can you spell that? Oh, do you want do you want to spell that for us, please? H e m a. T-O-H-I-D-R-O-S-I-S. <laughs> try, try typing it in into the computer and you'll get it. Hematridosis. That's, that's how I, would, I usually pronounce that. It finally came back to me. How do you pronounce it? Hematridosis. It's, it's, a, it's a severe condition. So that blood signifies that when Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death, he was stating a fact. Mm -hmm. He wasn't stating just how he felt. And we tend to dismiss those words as though they're not highly significant. But they are a statement of the reality he was experiencing, that he was dying of the, the sorrow and, and the emotional agony that comes from sin. And, and Luke suggests, because Luke is the one that talks about the blood coming from the forehead, it suggested that he really did start to die in Gethsemane, and if the angel hadn't come and strengthened him, he would have. Mm. So right there and then, he would have died as a result of sin, 
And, and that would have been clear to the universe, but not to human beings. And that's why Jesus said, I, I if I be lifted up, will draw all to me. Uh, meaning everybody then will be embraced in this. And then you have the, the spear uh, piercing his side. There's been a couple of physicians that wrote an article for the Journal of American Medical Association, usually called JAMA, in which they contended that the, that condition of the blood and the water coming from his side it was the result of the severe physical stress on his body. You know, he hadn't eaten or, or drunk anything for hours and hours. He, he had the scourging, which was horrendous, uh, the nails, uh, the crown of thorns, and then the, the experience of crucifixion in which he was suffocating to death because that's how crucifixion uh, killed people. They contended that all of that combined would cause this strange phenomena of the water separating from the blood. I, I think it was purely conjecture on their part. I mean, they tried to explain it physiologically. But the truth is, Jesus didn't die from crucifixion, did he? He didn't die from blood loss. And I believe that, that those separate streams of blood and water signify the nature of the death, that it was emotional agony that killed him. The result of sin. And, and we tied that together last week uh, with Jesus' perpetual statement about Gehenna, a Gehenna being a place of weep, darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, the emotional agony of the wicked. So the second death that Jesus died is a death of emotional agony. So that's where we left off last week. We're now ready to look at Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. And uh, let's see, Tara, would you like to read that, please? About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that tell us about the kind of death Jesus died or what caused that death? That he was all alone. He could not see he could not see his father. He could not, see his father. He could not sense his presence. Mm-hmm. Totally, and we don't we don't grasp how horrible that would be because we tend to get along quite nicely without sensing God's presence, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> um, but Jesus lived in that presence every every day of his life, twenty four seven. Yeah. Also, I don't know if this is for a lot of other people, but if, you know, your man can turn their back on you really quickly, but if, you know, the sovereign of the universe does that, it's like you have no hope. And that would be extremely crushing, I would think. I think, I think what Ellen White depicts is, is what I think actually happens. That Jesus... Had all his ministry, she says, he had witness to the Father's love. Mm-hmm. He had proclaimed it, he had lived in it, he had shared it, and now it was gone. Mm-hmm. He couldn't sense it. Total abandonment, as it were. And, and you think of the trauma in our sphere of, of things, 
that an infant goes through when separated from love. In fact, studies have shown that infants die when they are not loved. And I'm, I'm not talking about basic care. Basic care can be given them, but if they don't have love, they die. So just if that is that traumatic for us who are fallen and sinful and, and accustomed to not sensing God's love, think what it would be like if you had been deeply, intimately connected to that love of God, totally believing it, totally baptized in it daily, then it'd be gone. The emotional agony, I don't think we can comprehend. I would like to propose to you this abandonment, this, this what appears to be withdrawal on the Father's part, which had to be in the, in the case of Jesus because Jesus had never cut himself off from the Father. He had never done anything uh, to sever those, that relationship. It's, it, so it isn't exactly what happens with the wicked. What happens with the wicked is they cut themselves off from God and God lets them have their choice, which means they separate themselves from him. That is according to Paul in Romans, and we're going to come to this, but I don't mind kind of going back and forth because the more we hear this, plus this group changes from week to week, uh, the more we hear this, the more we can grasp it. Uh, Romans 1 describes God's wrath and says that it was, it, it was revealed from heaven. And three times that description is given, and God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. And there's a specific uh, Greek word that Paul uses, and, and he uses it in other places, in Romans and, and elsewhere. Uh, I used to wonder where he got that because it's quite a unique perception of that word. The gospel writers use it very differently. Um, so where did he, Paul get that use in connection with God's wrath? And this week, uh, I was teaching this in um, Prophets of Israel class. Isaiah 53 in the Septuagint says three times that God gave the suffering servant over to death or over to his sins, over to our sins, I'm sorry. Three times he uses that same word. And this is the Bible Paul is using among the Gentiles. So I think that's where he got it. He uses it three times in Romans. It's three times in the Septuagint version of Isaiah 53. So all of this is tied together. When people reject God's love in their hearts, in their lives, at the very end, and God gives them their wish, they are left with nothing. No one, no one to be with them, to comfort them, sustain them. I don't think we realize how much we owe to the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that embraces us in love. He's the one who walks with us and supports us and constantly reflects the Father's love to us. And without him, then we're left with that emotional agony too. So, so the final destruction of the wicked and how Jesus died is extremely tied together. Okay, now we've come to the end of Matthew. And I know you, not all of you have been here through the whole journey, so um, this is going to be a little tricky to answer. I have a proscript here. What are Jesus' favorite metaphors in Matthew for salvation? And this is... This is a tough one because if you don't know the book of Matthew real well. 
It's a little hard to tell. Is Bree one of them? That's John. Um, Matthew, uh, if we look at, let's see if we can, um, let's go to, uh, oh, let's see. Well, there's one metaphor that Jesus uses all the time but never says it. Let me think of what it is. This is actually in all four Gospels. There's a metaphor Jesus applies and he, he exercises, but he doesn't speak it. So he acts it out. I know in the, you know, the attitudes, he kept saying, blessed, you know, as a, as, and then connects it with the kingdom of heaven. Actually, the Beatitudes is a good place to start because Jesus uh, actually gives step-by-step process to salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, you've got to feel your need. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Why is that, by the way? Humility is maybe, maybe about the most underappreciated character trait. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and, of course, with humility comes, you recognize the need for ongoing learning as opposed to thinking that you're established as a learn, learn head. You know, so, so I, I don't know, I think it's very valuable. You know? I'm, and, you know, in my life, I've had so many reasons to have to maintain my humility. You know, like, you know, I've made, made so many boo-boos, you know. So. I made one this week. That was classic. <laughs> <laughs> I emailed the wrong student, and it happened to be a former colleague <laughs> with some information. <laughs> really bad. But isn't it true that we can only receive love if we have a sense of need for it? Mm-hmm. That the most basic ingredient for, for receiving the love of God is to need it and to need him. Uh, so then you have a blessed, okay, so blessed are the, you have the Beatitudes in front of you so you can, because I'm, I'm looking elsewhere while we're talking. Blessed are those who mourn. What is that about? People who grieve because of loss. It is, so people who grieve, but this is in the steps to salvation, what is mourning about? There's a word we use for it. Repentance. Why is that? Necessary. To mourn, you had to have loved. So once we are, we, once we feel our need for the love of God, the God's love immediately comes, starts coming in, and, and it's His love that brings us to repentance. So the goodness of God, Romans two four, brings us, leads us to repentance, or is meant to lead us to repentance. If if something, if somebody does something bad to someone, and it doesn't make us grieve. What does that suggest? Doesn't it suggest that we're capable of doing the same thing to someone else? Mm -hmm. And so what love does is awaken us to the horrible things that are unloving that are done to people. And the grief uh, that we have for what we've done to other people uh, is a good sign that the love of God is working on our hearts and and breaking up that hard, cold, uh, stony heart that the Bible talks about and is beginning to give us a heart of flesh. So what's the next one? 
in the Beatitudes. The meek. The meek. That's, that's another phase of humility. Can there be true love without humility? Humility is the opposite of feeling entitled to something. Like I deserve it. Isn't it? Can there be true love when someone feels entitled to something? We have, we have a, a psychological term we use for people who feel entitled. They're narcissists. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems to me that, the, that nar- all narcissism is, is really just simply pride. And it comes from the father of pride and his rebellion against God. So, have you ever known a proud person who was loving and kind? I mean, the, the, the bulk of their conversation is about themselves, right? So it seems to me that, that meekness and humility is the underlying ingredient for love. And which means that the heart of God is humble. The bottom line for God's heart is humble. And when Jesus came and exhibited that humility of God, he was exhibiting God's bottom line. Everything Jesus did was for God or or for us. For uh, for others, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nothing for himself. Mm -hmm. He took only that he might give. There's two. There's there's the two kinds of people that exist in the world. Those who give to take, mm-hmm. and those who take to give. So what's the what's the fourth one? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for what is righteousness? Well, I don't know, you know, righteousness is being right, right with God. Or, or, I mean, we want to be, I think, we're hungry and thirsty to get better, even though, like, we, like we realize our, our, our reach exceeds our grasp. Is, is, is righteousness just keeping some arbitrary rules that we have no clue why they're there? Yeah. Yeah. Like righteousness in relationships, you know, being, being, being you know, things are, are, are um, functional. With the people that we interact with, maybe not just even functional, but thriving. Yeah, there you go. Where where we empower one another instead of cutting down one another. Yeah, it seems to me that the heart of righteousness is love, because love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, if that's the case, then hungering, thirsting for that is like hungering, thirsting for the love of God. And and when we do that, we receive. Right. There's, God is not short on his love. He's not short on answering those kinds of prayers and desires. What's the next one? Blessed are the merciful. I don't know that I need to say anything about that. <laughs> uh, but you see the step-by-step progression from feeling our need to oh, the love of God awakening us, the, the, how horrible sin is and how, how wrong it is and how deadly it is, to uh, being more humble, humbled by our repentance, you might say, and then wanting the love of God in our hearts and then becoming merciful.
just a quick question. What is the progression to? What are we progressing? To the point of persecution, I guess. <laughs> if you go to the end, if you go to the end of the, of the Beatitudes, uh, the top of the line is blessed are those, blessed are you when men revile you and, and persecute you and say all manner of things falsely on my account. But earlier you were saying that it was the process to salvation. Is that because the end, beginning is to recognize we don't have it. We don't have the love of God in mm-hmm. our hearts. And the end result is to have it so thoroughly that people hate us. Mm, I see. It's, it's the love of God really richly manifested that stirs up Satan to, to wrath, and that in turn stirs up people who abhor the love of God to anger. Well, not to, that's part of it. People hate us, but we love them anyway. Right, right. And that's why Jesus tells us to rejoice. Uh, he doesn't say here to love our enemies, but he does by the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's, that's, I think he took, he stopped where he did because they could only handle so much right then. Uh, he then swings back to that at the end of, the, of chapter 5. So, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, those who want peace, not war. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. That's more than just purity sexually. Uh, that is purity of in- having integrity, having uh, what you see is what you get kind of things, not sneaking around, not hiding, not having a two-faced kind of religion or a two-faced kind of relationship with God. Isn't there something about this not only growing from a stony heart to a flesh heart, but also from individual to global, and not global in the sense of this world, but ultimately we're going to have to be able to live in a sinless society where the universe is involved. And so it would, wouldn't that also in, envelop, you know, coming outside of yourself to love others as he loved us? Yeah, that, that all goes back to need. And without that basic need, really recognize that we don't have it and we need it. And asking, and then, and asking for it and then it brings us to repentance. Without those first few steps, uh, we can't do the rest of it. And those who can do that first step, like the thief on the cross, you know, they don't have, a time, have time to grow all the way up the ladder. But they have that first, those first two steps. He, he apparently felt his need of the love of Jesus. He then repented of his life, but his focus was not on himself. You notice that? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. His focus is on Jesus and what Jesus can do. And that's, that's salvation. So salvation begins at step one, is the way I see it. And the rest is what, where step one leads us if we follow through. Uh, and so, therefore, at no point are we earning our salvation. It's all the work of God in us, all the way through. Uh, the goodness of God awakens our need. <clears throat> the goodness of God uh, brings us to repentance. The goodness of God helps us to become meek and lowly of heart. And the goodness of God helps us hunger and thirst for His love. Uh, it's it's 
that way all the way through. Um, I'm still looking for a metaphor Jesus acted out in Matthew. Let's try, what about healing people? Is that a metaphor for salvation? And why did Jesus spend more time healing the sick than preaching about salvation? Remember that Matthew one twenty one establishes that you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So why did he spend so much time healing people? Was that just the right arm of the message to get them to listen to what he had to say? Or is there something more? Healing. His healing is the first step for us to recognize our need. Okay, helping them to recognize their need of love, that would still be the right arm. I think it's a good example for us because, you know, like if we really want to influence people for the for the gospel, we need to make sure we're taking care of their needs, even on a temporal level, before we like start trying to hammer home how like you're lost and like you you know, you need to come to Jesus, you know, like like okay. So I so, can be, so, like, what, so I can be you know, um, you know, you know, arrogant like you, you know. So So what you're really saying is that healing people is giving them the gospel. The, the pounding on doors and handing out literature, the uh, preaching uh, sermon, the uh, telling them to repent and be saved, all of that means nothing unless they understand the metaphors. Right? So understanding the metaphor is actually embracing healing. There's another way to translate what I quoted in Matthew 121. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will heal his people from their sins. The word to save means also to heal. And, and that, to me, is what Jesus is doing. He's not just trying to catch people and, and manipulate them into the gospel. That's not his goal. His goal is to teach the gospel. This is the gospel. I'm healing you, and I want to heal you from sin. The same way I'm healing you. And which means that sin is a disease. It's a disease that works on the mind. Ellen White suggests it's a mental illness. Yeah, it's funny. Um, even sometimes with our giving, we have our own little agenda with it. I think of this homeless ministry we were involved with when we lived in, in Maryland, and we'd go and make meals for people, you know, that were homeless at, at, at the soup kitchens or whatever. And first time we did it, um, they created lovely vegetarian food. Some of it was vegan, and God bless those poor folks that were on a you know cigarette and, and Budweiser diet. <laughs> all it was the salad, the, the veggie food was all going in the trash. And of course, a lot of people were really upset. Like, how that? You know, I worked hard on that. How dare they throw that away? And then one, probably the most conservative-looking woman in the room, like was off in a corner by herself and very quietly said, "I think we need to decide whether we're here to make them be vegetarians or whether we're here to give them a meal." And that was like an epiphany, you know. So like after that, we were buying buckets of fried chicken and hamburgers and stuff because that's what they'd eat. You know, it's not, you know, you know, and then like, then we could talk to them and, and pray with them and, you know, because we, we created an, an, an environment that was more comfortable for them. So, but it was really like, oh, like, you know, I had an agenda. We had an, even though it was like we were trying to give them a healthy meal, we weren't meeting them at their point of need, you know. For, so. 
meeting meeting them where they are. And and you can't heal someone unless you win their trust, can you? Mm-hmm. I guess there's nobody around the table planning to be a physician. <laughs> uh, but physicians know that they can only work with the patient to the extent that the patient trusts them. And, and healing them is one way of getting their trust. In fact, my cousin used to say that uh, when, when he was able to rescue someone, and my cousin was a pulmonary specialist, that you know, he'd save someone's life, quite literally, go into emergency and, and help them breathe. He would say that he could place them in his hip pocket. Just about. I mean, they were just in his hand, ready to ready to accept anything he had to tell them. Uh, because they were so grateful. And so healing is a way of gaining trust. It is also a way of demonstrating the kind of healing that God wants to do in us. Which is also by faith. Uh, without God, without our trusting the great physician, he can't heal us from sin. And so much of salvation is winning our trust, which I hope we keep in mind when we head for Romans. I have more on this postscript. Did it strike you that toward the end of his life, Jesus spends more time talking about how to be lost than how to be saved? This is true of Matthew. He talks more about how to be lost than how to be saved. Uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the parable of the sower. All the parables really talk about someone getting lost. (laughs) Why would he spend more time talking about how to be lost than how to be saved? I have a simplistic answer, but I also think it's a little deeper than a simplistic answer. My my simplistic answer is um, there's only one way to be saved. And there are many ways to be lost. <laughs> I'm just wondering, could you like just repeat what your question is? Yeah, Jesus spends more time towards the end of his ministry in Matthew talking about the ways to be lost than he does about the ways to be saved. Why is that? Well, I think as you wisely stated, there's, there's only one way to be saved. But here's the thing, if we don't choose that way, we are lost. Like, it's not like Satan gives us a choice, like, okay, you can pick between me and Jesus. Like, no, you don't pick Jesus, I got you. You know, and so Jesus is the only one that loves us enough to give us a choice. Yeah. But, okay, Doug. I, I mean, I, I think he showed us how to be saved. Okay. And he couldn't show us how to be lost, so <laughs> he had to tell us. Had to tell us, okay. And, and we, would, we would think we had done all that we needed to do to be saved because we always look at this from what we have to do rather than what God is going to do in our lives. And what Jesus really is saying, you have to earn it. You have to earn being lost. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is free. But you have to earn being lost. You have to work hard at it. And one way to do it is bury your talent in the ground. Another way to do it is to not do kind and loving things to other people. You know, and we think of that as passive because just not doing anything is, is going to get us nowhere. But, but in a sense, we're earning it. That's, that's why Paul says the wages of sin is death. You earn wages, right? The wages of sin is death. 
Sin pays its wage. You earned it. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But I think you said something very profound just now. Risk-averse living is not living righteously. You know, we live boldly for Jesus. You know, I mean, one thing I love about Scripture is, other than Jesus, there's a bunch of bumblers and stumblers in here. You know, that just live boldly. You know, even though they fell, they still did some things that were incredible, you know, um, for, the, for the Lord. There's another way to put this, and that is that in addition to having to earn it, God created us to function a certain way. Like the whole natural world, everything lives outside itself, lives for others. The water goes somewhere and comes back up into the atmosphere. Okay, the, the rivers run into the ocean, the ocean comes in the atmosphere, lets down rain, which replenishes the water supply, and so on. It's a, it's a complete cycle. Uh, we call it an ecosystem, in a sense. And, and we have all of these systems in nature. Nothing lives for itself. It all lives to give. That's what we were created to be. We were created to love. We were created to live, to give, and to stop protecting ourselves and, and living out of self-interest. So when God regenerates us with his love, he makes us, empowers us to be who we really were meant to be. And it's the most natural thing in the world to do the things that Jesus taught, warns us if we don't do, we lose. So he restores our function. He restores who he created us to be. And if we reject that, we have to go against ourselves. And that's the earning part. We have to go against who we were created to be in order to be lost. All right, um, I have another question. Do we have to work harder to be saved or to be lost? <laughs> you already answered that one. Mm -hmm. I think I did. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have nine minutes to start Mark. Mark one twenty one to 2.12. And, and this is a good bridge because they're about healings. So, uh, Taylor, would you read verses 21 to 28? They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they, were, they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching, and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So now we have a healing of demon possession. What does that tell us about salvation and atonement? 
And the man can't even talk, right? It's the spirit in him, the demon in him that talks and screams. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? How have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, be quiet. He tells the unclean spirit to come out of him. What gives Jesus the permission to do that? I mean, God doesn't force himself 